Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to Savvy Sabs Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Salvati. My special guest tonight is a journalist. He's the host of Pushback at the Gray Zone, and he recently won the International Journalist Award. Everyone, please give a huge welcome to Aaron Mate. Hey, Sabrina. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. So uh, before we get into the topics I want to talk about, I want to hear a little bit about your background. Why did you decide to get into independent media and how did you end up at the Gray Zone? I'm from Vancouver, Canada, and uh, I was born to very political parents. My uh, my father was a student radical when he was in college and has always been political. When I was a kid, he would he would go off. He went to Nicaragua to um, uh, observed the impact of the Reagan Contra War on Nicaragua, and he went to the occupied territories to do medical work, um, observing the Israeli crackdown on Palestinians in the first Intifada. So I, you know, I've always just been around left wing politics. My my uncle too was worked for has worked for Greenpeace for a very long time and has always done environmental activism. And so I, I was just I've always been steeped in social justice, and I've always just really been into it for as long as I can remember. When I first discovered Noam Chomsky, that was like a, you know, that was, it was mind blowing. It was like discovering Led Zeppelin. It was like for a, for a teenage boy. Um, it, it was that, you know, important to me and that resonant with me. So I, I've always been a lefty and I've always been into journalism. Uh, I remember reading in the New Yorker, an article by Mark Danner about the El Mazate massacre in El Salvador, US backed death squads killing innocent villagers in El Salvador. And just, I just was very, very moved by the story and also just very inspired by what journalism could mean. It could mean giving people the truth about what our leaders are doing. So that's always kind of guided me. And um, after university in Canada, I started working for Naomi Klein, the author, and that as a researcher, and that led to a job at Democracy Now!, the, uh, the progressive, uh, uh, TV radio show, and I was there for ten years, and uh, then I left and just bounced around to a few places, uh, Al Jazeera, and the Real News mainly. And uh, then RussiaGate happened, and like, you know, that just set a real fault line in lefty media. Either you're willing to oppose that, or you weren't. And I just, from the start, RussiaGate was such a scam and so dangerous for so many reasons that we can get into if you want. I mean, I've talked about it a lot. People have probably heard me say the same things a lot, but um, you know, to me, there was just no going back in, uh, in challenging that, even though I knew it would close off certain opportunities to me, but it opened up so much more. Uh, it opened me up to an audience that, you know, hadn't heard of me before. And it, it allowed me to really kind of, uh, you know, uh, develop and explore my own political voice, which I wasn't able to do at Democracy Now!, which is about, you know, you're there to, you're part of a collective that basically feeds Amy Goodman's journalism, but not really your own. So, so Russiagate kind of changed things for me in many ways on that. And I'll just politically, you know, like there are a lot of people who went along with it. And so it, um, that just, that just changed my trajectory in terms of places that I otherwise would have normally tried to work for just weren't, weren't available anymore. And I had no more interest in working for those places. And luckily during this time, the gray zone under Max Blumenthal's watch was flourishing. I mean, him and Ben Norton were already doing so much amazing investigative work. And um, I've known Max for a long time. And uh, it all just kind of came together that um, 
he wanted to expand the gray zone. I was looking after I left the real news, I was looking for a new place to go. And so that's how I joined the gray zone. And it's been great. I do this podcast pushback and I also write articles and um, it's been cool. And you know, I, I still work for other places too, but I'm for many reasons, I'm incredibly grateful that the gray zone exists. Awesome. Yeah. You guys do phenomenal work over there. Um, so I want to get your opinion on this. Uh, recently, Joe Biden has decided to boycott the Beijing Olympics uh, due to uh, genocide and crimes against humanity that's supposedly happening in China. And I want to get your take on this. Number one, is there a genocide happening in China? And two, what do you think about the United States government like making that call, criticizing another country for not treating people there correctly? Well, first of all, I mean, let me, you know, when I get this question, I respond with the question, if you really thought that there was mass killings of people in Xinjiang, which is what genocide is, that's mass mass extermination, don't you think, A, there'd be some more evidence for it, and B, don't you think we'd be doing more than just, like, criticizing China on Twitter or boycotting the Olympic Games? I mean, don't you think there'd be calls for uh, a UN intervention if there was actually a genocide going on. And it's the, the U S has this, um, way and it's, it's accepted blindly in the U S media to just lodge allegations against designated enemies, um, no matter how farcical and wild and the media just accepts them on faith. And much of the progressive media too, unfortunately has accepted these claims on faith without looking for what the actual evidence is. What does the evidence actually shows? Well, look, Again, the gray zone's done phenomenal work on this. The main source for these genocide claims in Xinjiang is a guy named Adrian Zent, who is a uh, right-wing evangelical bigot who says that he's on a mission from God to uh, basically change Chinese society. And you know, reporting from my gray zone colleagues has showed that his the, some of the figures that he cited are fabricated, and they're based on taking data about. Um, about birth control measures in China and spinning that to, to, to mean evidence of a genocide. It, it's a complete farce and it serves an obvious geopolitical purpose, which is that China's economic power is rising. It's a threat to US supremacy. And that's why we're seeing this increased rhetoric against China. There's what's actually happened in Xinjiang as far as I know. And again, I, I have limited, I have limited, uh, I have very limited visibility because I've never been there for myself, but basically they have an extremism problem. Uh, they they've suffered many terror attacks. They've responded in ways that people like Chaz Freeman, who's a veteran U.S. diplomat, served as Nixon's ambassador, as Nixon's translator when he went to China. Chaz Freeman says are are repressive and harsh, and you know he wishes that they wouldn't do. Um, and I have no reason to dispute what he says. I you know he, he's a very credible voice to me. But to say that this is a genocide is so farcical. I mean, basically, well, what they've done is they've imposed these mandatory uh, centers where people go for education in a bid to uh, de-radicalize people. That's the idea behind it. And in the process, I would not be surprised at all if there have been human rights abuses uh, and all sorts of bad things. But that's far different than a genocide. And look, just compare it to what the U.S. supports around the world. The U.S. is the number one oppressor of Muslims around the world. Compare what is happening in Xinjiang, where you have China in response to, and, and these terror attacks are real. I mean, people there have been a series of terrorist attacks from Uyghur extremists inside China. In response to that, China launches this, this whatever you want to call it, a re-education, de-radicalization 
initiative. Okay, so that's what China does. What does the U.S. do uh, in response to 9/11? You know, a similar problem of Islamic uh, extremism leading to terrorism. The U.S. launched a global war where it asserted supremacy over the entire world to invade countries, massacre civilians, torture people, uh, kidnap people from abroad and bring them to Guantanamo Bay and torture them there. I mean, it doesn't even rise to a uh, what China is doing, whatever it's doing, doesn't even rise to a fraction of what the U.S. has done and continues to support, for example, in Gaza, this massive open air concentration camp where Gazans are deprived water, all their basic rights. They can't leave. They're bombed whenever Israel feels like it. And then we have the gall to claim that we care about China oppressing Muslims and we and we think there's a genocide. It's it's a uh, it's a farce. And what I care about is how many people on the on the progressive left have fallen for it. And uh, it's not because people are imperialists. It's just because we are so bombarded with propaganda in this country. And the notion of American supremacy is so deeply ingrained here because we have to be propagandized because you know the US what the US government does around the world it couldn't happen if it didn't engineer the consent of the population because technically we do have freedom here to actually change our government's policies so that's why there's so much effort put into propaganda to propagandizing us so that we're concerned about the alleged alleged and fictional crimes of official enemies and not concerned about our own crimes which far surpass everyone else's combined and then multiplied by several factors. So um, that's what's, I think, behind this current thing about Xinjiang in the same way that, look, in the early 2000s, I don't know if you remember, but remember where Darfur, there was supposedly a genocide mm -hmm. there. And then you looked at the actual facts and actually what that was was a really horrific civil war between rival factions in Sudan. And I don't know exactly what the motive was for that campaign to get everyone to care about Darfur, but I suspect it was to um, distract us from the consequences of our, uh, you know, murderous invasion of Iraq. Also because global sympathy for the Palestinian cause was rising at that time. So whenever we get ginned up to, uh, you know, be concerned about some genocide committed by an official enemy, you have to wonder just what the agenda is. And, but before Darfur, remember it was Tibet where we all had to care about. It's always, we're always supposed to care about what some government that we have no control over is doing as a means to distract from what our government is doing, which is far worse than anything we accuse others of. And the saddest part of all this, or one of the saddest parts is that, you know, the US propaganda came around Xinjiang, it's gonna hurt the people of Xinjiang. Now the US uh, Congress has passed sanctions that are targeting companies that do business in Xinjiang. Who's that, who's that gonna hurt? That's gonna hurt the workers of, of Xinjiang. And that's always what the US playbook is. You know, take advantage of uh, uh, inter, like internal conflicts, to try to basically stoke uh, conflict and civil war and then squeeze the subjugated population so that conditions for them are, are, are even worse, which makes it more difficult for the targeted government that we're trying to destabilize to govern. I mean, it, it's the same playbook over and over and over. And unfortunately, too many people have fallen for it. Right. Uh, so recently, China passed the U.S. in net worth. And I kind of feel like that is part of the reason why Joe Biden is trying to escalate tensions with China. What's your opinion about that? I didn't know that about the net worth thing. I, I mean, I, I, when people say that China is surpassing the U.S. economically, I mean, technically there might be some numbers to support that, and certainly they're 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 growing very quickly, and have made some big achievements. But still, the U.S. still controls the world. I think economically, U.S. corporations have 
a far bigger stake in the in uh, in controlling the world economy than everybody else. I would bet even combined. Um, so I um, but certainly like regardless of what the actual numbers are, the fact that China is a rising power economically, not militarily, but economically, I think is what underpins this all this talk we're hearing about China. That makes sense. Um, so there have been uh, some independent media channels on the left that have kind of been advocating for if there if there becomes a conflict between China and uh, and uh, Taiwan that we should get involved. Uh, I personally don't believe that. I don't think the U.S. should interfere in other countries. That's just my personal belief. Uh, but I want to know, like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, of course, I'm opposed to U.S. Uh, intervention everywhere. And the Taiwan-China conflict is a is one that the U.S. has a deep role in historically. But yeah, I mean, it's not our business. <laughs> and uh, I I don't think it would actually happen. I just don't see how, like, strategically, it's the same thing with Ukraine and Russia. I just the U.S. is not going to be able to win that conflict. So I don't know why they would. They they're certainly doing all they can to make. Taiwan a problem for China and to in the same way they they tried to make Hong Kong a problem for China too but mm -hmm. I don't think the prospect of military conflict is is all that real but certainly regardless you know of what right do we have to intervene mean anywhere I mean it's it's taken for granted that we have the right to intervene uh for some reason I guess because we think we're superior to, to other countries that's the only ultimate explanation that I think it comes down to but no of course I don't accept that Thanks so much for the super chat, Kate. Mention and talk about Marvin Gaye with Aaron Maté. Uh, are you from Marvin Gaye, the singer? Are you familiar with this, Aaron? Well, I mean, I, you know, obviously uh, this uh, viewer follows me closely because, I, yeah, I mean, Marvin is my favorite artist of all time. And I, uh, I've i done, uh, I recently did a pushback episode with uh, his biographer, David Ritz. And I, I mean, you know, Marvin Gaye means a lot to me. So that's where that, that's where that request comes from. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That is awesome. Uh, so I want to talk to you more about the Biden administration because there's been a lot going on, especially in the past couple of weeks. Uh, build back better. So the other day I saw a lot of progressives in Congress uh, heavily coming out against Joe Manchin. Obviously, I knew that would happen. But when they were questioned about Joe Biden's ability and what he can do in reference to executive order, uh, they wouldn't answer that question. They kept deflecting back to Joe Manchin. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they've just made Joe Manchin a rotating villain. I feel like if it wasn't him, it would be someone else. Yeah. I've also heard uh, Joe Manchin say all this time that he didn't agree with this bill. So now everybody is surprised. Pramila Jayapal, Ayanna Presley, they're all coming out in the woodwork. I want to get your opinion about that. Do you feel that there's more that Joe Biden can do himself? And why do you feel that the other progressives in, in the House are just not even willing to, um, I guess, say negative things about Joe Biden and put it all on Joe Manchin. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I've, I mean, it's, he could take executive action on so many things, including student debt, but he's not. And in terms of why progressives are hesitant to criticize him, I mean, the, the Democratic Party is just, it, it's not a genuine political party in which there's people really willing to you know, take principled stands and go mm -hmm. against the party leader in the case of Biden. I mean, you know, I, I do think you have to give the squad some credit here in that back when the Progressive Caucus gave up their leverage by voting for the infrastructure bill and letting it, letting, letting 
uh, Congress decoupled the infrastructure bill from Build Back Better. The squad did warn against that. And uh, they were proven right uh, in that they were basically handing all the leverage to to Joe Manchin. And um, yeah, look, there should be efforts right now to put pressure on Biden to take executive action. He, he could do it. I mean, FDR, if I understand history correctly, someone could correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but FDR did, I believe, took a lot of executive action. There's no reason why Joe Biden couldn't follow in that in that model. But I think like even with FDR, like he did so after like the people rose up and like yeah. put, pre- put pressure on him. Do you feel that maybe like in America, we need to do that? Like people need to come together. We need more like direct action to demand that Joe Biden actually does something because right now, like, I don't even feel like he's actually the president of the United States. Like I saw his press conference yesterday and he said, I'm not even supposed to be doing this press conference. I was like, what? So it, it just seems like to me that he's not uh, a capable leader right now. Um, I don't know who would be better fit at this point. I just, in reference to Democrats, I don't feel like either of them are really going to help the people. I feel like they're mainly just there to help their donors and corporations and make them happy. Um, but I, I feel like we really need a movement in this country where the people actually come together and rise up like they did in France. Of course. And the question is, why don't we have that? Why have, why have we not had that pretty much ever, you know, uh, in my lifetime, when I try to think about mass mobilization in the U S that was successful in the eighties, there was like a, a movement to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons, you know, millions of people in Central Park marching, you know, and that worked, actually. There, there were some reductions in nuclear weapons. Uh, before the Iraq war, you know, there was a lot of people out on the streets. But what happened? You know, um, the left has been very divided. It's hard to mobilize. I mean, it's a question we all have to ask ourselves. I mean, why aren't I doing more to get involved in organizing and being taking part in the mass mobilization that you're, that you're talking about? I mean, like, we do our thing. We do our our, our YouTube shows and we talk on Twitter and, but it's like, um, all of us aren't doing enough, you know, uh, cause certainly the democratic party has showed us that they're not going to do anything. Uh, and even when they're pushed, it's very hard for them to even do anything. So of course there needs to be mass mobilization. I just don't have the answers to how we, how we do it. I mean, what I, what I do know is that, uh, the democratic party has been terrible for the left. I mean, Barack Obama was like this brilliant figure in, advancing the, you know, the like establishment neoliberal agenda while making so many people think that we're making progress in this country, you know, uh, and that's kind of the democratic brand is giving us the illusion that we're making progress while entrenching the status quo. And how do we get around that? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not something I figured out. And, you know, I talk about Russiagate a lot because this guy, I think Russiagate was so destructive for everything that progressives stand for. I mean, instead of, mobilizing against Trump's tax cuts, you know, one of the few things Trump accomplished was stealing more money from, you know, average people and giving it to the wealthy. We were mobilizing to save Robert Mueller's job and to save Jeff Sessions' job and to uh, believe in a Trump-Russia conspiracy theory. So um, it's a tough time. And uh, we've seen with the squad, I mean, although, like, I don't think they're you know, there's only so much they can do, but even in their own context, like they certainly, uh, I I think haven't really stood up to the centrist wing as much as they could. So what do we do? What what do the rest of us do? It's a great question. And I I don't have any answers, unfortunately. 
Do you think that the problem or part of the problem is the two party system? Like, what's your opinion about third parties? Of course. I mean, look, look, <laughs> it's it's a terrible system. It's a farce of a democracy. Other countries are far more civilized, like Canada, where I'm from. There's a bit more. I mean, there's there's like uh, there's three main parties, I guess, and then a couple more fringe parties. And but even th even there, like the the most lefty party the ndp the national democratic party they're not, still not even that lefty so it's just in a in a corporate ruled society it's really hard to have political parties that can actually be independent and serve the will of the people so of course we need more parties but it has to go beyond parties too i just you know i think if we could see higher union rates if we could you know revive the labor movement and I think that would make a huge difference in in democratic participation and actual democracy. But there's, you know, we're, we're under a neoliberal assault. It's very difficult to do all that. I'm curious about since you're from Canada in reference to the healthcare system. So some of the things that I've heard before is if we have universal health care in this country, then we're going to have people wait like in long lines. It's going to take them forever to get an appointment to go to the doctor. Uh, you're from a country where everyone has health care. Have you seen that like in Canada? I mean, look, there are some things where if you were like the same income bracket as you, you know, in the U.S. versus Canada, we're probably in the U.S. You can get it faster because, you know, you'd be skipping a line. But the point is, what kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society where you privilege uh, people's um, wealth or over their health? You know, and I, I'd rather wait longer for something if it meant I could save someone else's life or, or give them the care that they urgently need more than me. I mean, that's just to me being a, um, a decent society, but yeah, no. But then of course, and then you have people who can't get what they need here at all because they don't have it because they don't have healthcare. So it's um, yeah. On some things there are longer waits, but you know what in Canada too, it's not completely egalitarian and rich people do pay for other services that they would otherwise have to wait for. So I, um, in terms of what works, it's not even a contest. It's like, you know, uh, the only people who claim that our system is better are those who are wealthy enough to benefit from it and don't have to worry about dying or suffering some severe illness or condition because they don't have the money to pay for their health care. And also, by the way, in Canada, right, like if you and I learned this, like when I left democracy now, I uh, I kind of forgotten that, like, once you leave your job, you uh, you lose your health care, you know. And I was like, and, and uh, so all of a sudden I was without healthcare and I was like, oh shit. And I'm just thinking like, it's so kind of, uh, in terms of one, you know, we're, we're, we're supposed to be all about freedom here and, you know, the American dream, blah, blah, blah. But like, what is more um, uh, confining than saying that like, you, if you leave your job, you lose your healthcare. I mean, I, I'm sure it's, I, I can't imagine how many times it's led people to not follow a certain dream or a certain path because they're worried about uh, their health and fair enough. Whereas in Canada, if you leave your job, you still have your health care. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing to me that it's amazing to me that the US has gotten away with the system. And that alone should make people rise up. But unfortunately, the assault on working people is just it's so crushing that there, there's not the space yet to rise up, you know. Uh, and when people do and when people do come along, like Bernie Sanders talking about, you know, universal health care, something just minimally decent, not even that radical. Look what happens to him. He gets he gets uh, demonized. It's uh, it's tough.
we have weird rules in this country. Like we, we're just so America is a conservative country. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes I think people don't realize that. Uh, but I remember the first time I went to Canada, I went to Montreal and I was in uh, a convenience store there and I noticed they had kinder eggs and I hadn't seen those since I lived in Germany (laughs) because they were legal here, Aaron. We couldn't have them in the United States because they said that people wouldn't know how to handle the toys that are inside the the eggs. They said American kids would eat them, would eat the toys. So yeah, we have weird, weird laws here. Um, I want to give a shout out to uh, Mr. Majoro is in for the super chat. In my opinion, Canada has a lopsided political system. At least USA can vote out their leader. The Canadian people can't even vote out Justin Trudeau, who is younger than Obama. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Thanks so much for that. Um, I want to get back to uh, Joe Biden because he announced something earlier today. And I want to get your opinion on this. I personally don't feel like this is enough. I mean, I'm I'm glad that he did this. But again, I feel like it's crumbs. I don't feel like this is really uh, something that is going to be transformative. So I'm going to go ahead and play this really quick. Folks, our economic recovery is the strongest in the world. But I know that because of the pandemic, many borrowers need more time to resume payments. For that reason, my administration is extending the pause on student loans repayments for 90 more days through May 1, 2022. In the meantime, folks should take advantage of the Department of Education's option to make payments easier, like income-based repayments or public service student loan forgiveness program. Look at them both. I also, I want you to stay safe, get vaccinated. Don't forget, don't forget to get your booster. It matters and happy holidays. So he extended the student loan repayment Um, I I think it's nice that it's been extended, but again, I feel like at this point they should just cancel student loan debt because if they can continue to extend it like this, then why can't they just cancel it? Yeah. And and meanwhile, I mean, look, it's, you know, to me, I wonder if anything really will ever change until, you know, there's an, a, a political movement that takes on the Pentagon budget. I mean, it just got passed. $768 $768 billion, I think, trillions of dollars over the next 10 years. And it's completely bipartisan. You know, only a small number of people in Congress vote against it every year. And so you have this you have this sort of like completely phony dance where the U.S. spends just endless amounts of money on machines of death. While Clinton, we can't afford to give people health care and we can't afford to forgive student debt. And so... Until that's taken on, I just I don't see how much will change because, you know, the money has to come from somewhere. But there is the money is there. It's just spent on on the wrong things. But Joe Biden certainly is not going to be taking on the Pentagon. And nobody is. I mean, everyone who tries to take on the Pentagon has run out of Washington. I mean, Dennis Kucinich was such a principled uh, progressive and he got run out. I mean, he like and the Democrats made it very hard for him to be in Washington. It's just it's hard to survive in that system. So, um yeah, but of course, I think Biden should cancel student debt. And I, I also think, again, coming from Canada, where like my tuition to go to uh, college was like a few thousand dollars a year, if even that. Now, it's probably more expensive now because this is a while ago. But the like friends of mine who went to like, I remember who would go to like, uh, they went to like liberal arts schools like Wesleyan and Hampshire. And it would blow my mind that they were, they were taking out loans that 
astronomical just to go to get an undergraduate degree, which basically is like, especially if you're in the humanities, you're just doing it to meet people and have cool experiences. And that's great. That's what college should be, but it shouldn't be that expensive. And I think uh, the U.S. has to work on that. It's crazy that undergraduate programs charge as much money as they do in this country. And of course, not everyone, you know, goes through that system. And thankfully, because I think it's such a scam, but it's a big problem for a lot of people who, you know, they want to do the best thing for their futures. They want to, you know, um, and, and they feel as if they have to go to these sort of like prestigious schools. And so they take out loans that they can't afford. And that's like, that, that I think has to be addressed too. Absolutely. So you brought up Russiagate and I, I want to hear more about that because I still go back to, I remember Rachel Maddow was heavy on Russiagate. She wouldn't stop talking about it. And I just kept telling myself, like, they're not going to be able to get Trump on this. Uh, I didn't think it was true to begin with anyway. And I was like, they're not going to be able to get him on this. But she heavily pushed that. Uh, why do you think or do you think that they actually believed that this was going to work? Do you think they actually believed that it was true? I th I mean, uh, it's hard to get inside people's heads. I think they convinced themselves that, yes, this the, the Trump-Russia conspiracy was real. And that this was going to bring him down. And we believe things, we believe false things when we have some sort of psychological incentive to believe them, right? So what was the incentive for neoliberal Democrats? Well, they got humiliated by Trump when he freestyled this campaign and humiliated their, you know, like the chosen leader, Hillary Clinton, who was, you know, her path to victory was inevitable. She, she of course, she was going to win. And he humiliated her by exploiting the fact that the neoliberal Democrat that she represented had, you know, decimated the working class in this country and Trump posed as this working class champion. And he spoke to very real concerns about people losing their jobs and factories and jobs going overseas. Those are real things. And neoliberal Democrats don't want to actually deal with that reality. So instead they create this fantasy world where the real reason was not because they, you know, crushed the working class and, you know, waged these disastrous regime change wars in Libya and Syria and also supported the war in Iraq, but because Trump was installed in the White House by Russia. So that's what incentivized them to uh, promote these conspiracy theories. And it also, you know, there's the added bonus where, you know, Trump rises from the wreckage of a dysfunctional neoliberal system. But all these people like Rachel Maddow and everyone else who works in elite media, they benefit from that system. They make tons of money telling people that our problems are from Vladimir Putin instead of our, our own oligarchs, or, you know, our own corporations, that our problem is Russian oligarchs, not U.S. oligarchs. So to reckon honestly with Trump's victory would have would have threatened or at least questioned these people's own privilege and power inside the economic system whose failures allowed Trump's presidency to exist. So they couldn't do that. So everybody was basically, it was too big to fail. Everybody was incentivized to push all this crazy stuff and to, uh, you know, turn away from what Trump was actually doing, such as the tax cuts, like one of the biggest, if not the biggest upper transfer of wealth in U.S. history. These people don't care about that because they're a part of that club anyway. It was much more um, advantageous for them and beneficial to focus on Russian oligarchs than on U.S. oligarchs. Mm. Thank you so much, the, the Robert Escobar Show, for the super chat. How do we get the average person to check back in? Believe the broken system can change. 
journalists aren't allowed to ask real questions. Take Charlemagne and Kamala. Why isn't every reporter asking those questions? Good points, Robert. Well, reporters aren't asking those, aren't asking those questions because reporters see themselves as part of the same club as the Biden White House. So they're like they're 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 on the same team. So they don't consider themselves to be independent adversarial reporters doing the job of getting the facts out to the public. They don't care about the public. <laughs> Their job is to serve uh, powerful elites who own and control the media corporations that they work for. Um, that's the state of it. And uh, that's why you're seeing such a flourishing of independent media is because people are, are sick of it. But the people inside these corporate outlets don't care. They don't care that everyone thinks that they're frauds because they're not there to serve the people. You know, it's they don't even hide it anymore. But it does at least lead to better opportunities for independent media. The problem is we're not allowed to ask the questions. You know, we're not allowed to um, get in the room and ask the questions that people like Charlemagne asked. And the reason Charlemagne could get in because he's coming from a an, from an entertainment realm. Yeah. And sometimes you can be more subversive or more or have better access to the powerful uh, by being in entertainment. That's just um, that's how it is. Yeah. And he interviewed her before. In fact, I think most of the presidential, uh, the Democratic presidential candidates went on to the Breakfast Club before uh-huh. he went off and did his solo show. Yeah. 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 Robert I mean, said, it, 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 you remember, you remember when Biden told Charlemagne that if you don't vote for him, then you're not black? Yep. I mean, uh, that, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought that was great that Charlemagne did that. I mean, he actually is doing, and he shamed the U.S. you know professional journalist class by showing, you know, what tough questioning actually looks like. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, Robert Durden said, ask Aaron to contrast the Trump Alpha Bank slash Perkins Coe story being propagated by HRC with the Hunter Biden email story where the New York Post was censored from Twitter to protect Biden. Yeah, I mean, that just shows the double standards over supposed disinformation, right? And we, you know, because of since Russiagate, we've been hit with this fear mongering campaign that disinformation is tearing our society apart. Meanwhile, the far biggest purveyors of disinformation are the same politicians and corporate media outlets who are railing against disinformation. I mean, Russiagate is the biggest, one of the biggest disinformation campaigns aimed at the U.S. public in, in U.S. history. And this uh, is a good example of that, where basically you the Hillary Clinton campaign before the election in 2016, promoting this theory that was supposedly backed up by independent researchers, but it turns out we recently learned that they were working with the Clinton campaign to concoct a phony narrative that Trump was secretly communicating uh, with a Russian bank, and that this was possibly some kind of covert communications channel by which they could engage in their sprawling conspiracy. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's been shown to be a scam and it's been now been subjected to, um, some indictments by John Durham, who's the special counsel investigating the handling of the Trump Russia probe. And, uh, but the media response to that has been to basically downplay it. And, you know, there's been no apologies for the, dis- for the disinformation that was pushed on that front, which is quite massive. I mean, this story circulated, it was a subject of a big story in the New Yorker magazine, trying to give it credibility. And then you compare that to a factual story that was literally censored, where you know Hunter Biden's laptop contained some damning revelations about his business dealings, and you know because this was before the 2020 election, it got censored. Twitter and Facebook wouldn't let you share it. The New York Post was locked out of its social media account. 
it's um and again this was cheered on by the same people who claim to care about disinformation and free speech it's uh, it's such a joke yeah it's a big problem um the other night i had a story that i was trying to show from the nation and it was an article that they wrote that said what Biden could do in reference to build back better, how he yeah. could do what Obama did like in 08 slash 09 uh, with the Federal Reserve. I clicked on that link like during the live stream and I had literally just read that article a couple hours before. Clicked on the link, all of a sudden it goes, oops, this is no longer here. And I'm like, what? Now, luckily I took a screenshot of it, but so I was able to show the screenshot. Now, maybe they just took it down for other reasons, but I had to question that, like, were they told to take it down because it said what Biden could do that he's not doing? I don't know. I, uh, I, I mean, you know, I know the editors of the nation and I don't think that they would cave to political pressure. I, I, I bet that was maybe there was a factual problem in the story or they changed the link. I, I'm confident that the nation would not succumb to that kind of pressure. But, you know, I, I don't know what happened there. Okay. That's good to know. Cause I was, I was worried. I was like, Oh my gosh, they got to them too. <laughs> Thanks so much, Roger, for the super chat ballot initiatives at state level is how you get them to check back in. Uh, that's a good point. Um, I'm in Massachusetts and we have ballot initiatives here. That's actually how we legalize marijuana here. Um, we also brought ranked choice voting through ballot initiatives. Didn't that didn't pass. Yeah. Um, I think it didn't pass though, because most people I talked to said they didn't understand the question. Right. Yeah, it's look, it's hard to organize. It's hard, and I I've never really done it. I mean, I and I, when I when I tried to do it in college, I was pretty bad at it. It's it's hard to organize. It is like I, you know, I can I can write about certain specific issues, and but the art of organizing is is difficult. And you know, anyone who's really successful at it comes under assault. You know. Fred Hampton gets assassinated when he's what, 20 years old, uh, because he actually was good at it and he was a genuine threat. It's, um, uh, yeah. Uh, but you, you think now in a pandemic with all the political consciousness that there is in this country, um, all the independent voices, I mean, all the, the widespread recognition that the system does not work, that it'd be time for something, you know, but, it just, uh, it hasn't happened. I mean, even Occupy, when that happened, it was cool. But in New York, at least, it was one little park. And um, it wasn't in low-income neighborhoods. You know what I mean? And that's that, I think, is the issue that hasn't been resolved yet. That I mean, it's uh, it's great. Everything that's been done is great. But the the real organizing, it's... I mean, I, I marvel at those who do it, like the Poor People's Campaign. That's, um, I mean, they seem really effective, and they've, they've been hammering home the point that there's so much money for the Pentagon, but not for people. You know, they point out that um, Lockheed Martin gets more money in this Pentagon, uh, in this recent Pentagon budget, than kids get uh, in Build Back Better for childcare. You know, more money for Lockheed Martin than for taking care of kids almost double actually the money it's something like 75 million for lockheed martin i think sorry 75 billion for lockheed martin and something like 40 billion for child care and that's got to be the message you know i mean who, who couldn't get down with that at this point except for weapons contractors in in dc and virginia 
Agreed. Um, a kid said, Sabby, could you please ask Mate to discuss how Democracy Now! is now propagating and framing a negative image on China and the exiting of Afghanistan? Thanks for another cool guest. Thanks so much, a kid. I mean, I've talked about this before. Democracy Now! has, unfortunately, on certain issues, thankfully not on every issue, but on certain foreign policy issues that I think require the most independent thinking and courage, like China, like uh, Syria, like Russiagate. Uh, you can go on to many more examples. Democracy Now! has unfortunately uh, gotten soft on those issues and has started propagating the establishment lines that they used to challenge. I mean, I, I was a big fan of Democracy Now! before I started working there. And when I was there, I, um, I learned a lot from it. You know, I work with many of the people who are still there and they're all very smart, principled people. I just think, you know, it comes down to, um, it's not, see, you know, people throw out things like donors and I don't think it's that. I think we just have such a sophisticated and effective propaganda system in this country that even well-meaning people like Democracy Now! get duped. Um, and get uh, you know, get used to propagate uh, stances that are completely antithetical to their own values. And especially if you look at DN on Syria, it's you know since I left, it's been awful. They've basically become pro dirty war, um, completely whitewashing the massive U.S. role in destroying Syria, flooding it with you know billions of dollars in weapons, and letting uh, jihadi fighters come in from around the world. And they've been completely one-sided. They barely allow any dissenting voice. And the dissenting voices that they do allow have been shut out. I mean, one of my mentors and someone who I met through Democracy Now! was Stephen Cohen, the late uh, Russia scholar, one of the leading Russia scholars in the U.S. But he was a huge critic of the new Cold War. And his last appearance on DN was in early 2017, you know, back when Russiagate was kicking off. And for the rest of Russiagate and unfortunately the rest of his life, because he passed away in September 2020, he wasn't let back on DN. And they've done that consistently with some really um, principled and longtime voices that they've always had on. So I just think they've gotten duped. And our propaganda system incentivizes conformity. It uh, rewards people who tow the party line. And I think subconsciously that has a very powerful effect, even on well-meaning people. And it's sad. It's really depressing to see. I mean, you look at how DN covers any demonized Latin American country, whether it's Nicaragua or Venezuela or Bolivia. Uh, they, it's like they're, you know, sometimes reading State Department press releases. And it's again, I don't think it's on. I don't think it's conscious. I don't think there's corruption there. It just speaks to the real need for independent thinking always, especially if you're in the West. And it speaks to the power of our propaganda system of reaching even well-intentioned people, but it's, um, it's sad. It's sad to see. I noticed a change in, uh, some of, uh, journalism, independent media after Biden won. Uh, it just seemed like so many people were just happy that Trump was gone, that they just went back to brunch and wanted us to all just expect to, to just be happy that Trump is gone. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that, uh, I, I feel like some people just stopped fighting, uh, in a sense. Yeah, they did. I mean, it, it's similar to what happened with Obama too, right? I mean, um, that's, uh, I mean, that certainly happened after Obama won. I mean, 
you know, there was all this excitement and people were so, you know, energized and wanting to participate in organizing, but Obama just shut it all down. He shut down his grassroots movement and we got, you know, eight years of milquetoast leadership with some, a couple of accomplishments, but a lot of, you know, awfulness. And uh, I think with Trump, I mean, everything became about Trump and um, everything became tied up in his personality and he was this singular unique threat we had to get rid of. And so once he was gone, um, you know, we were all told just to go home because again, we're not supposed to be organized around issues that actually materially impact our lives. We're supposed to be invested in personalities, whether it's supporting personalities like Obama or Clinton or Biden, or, you know, detesting personalities like Trump. And once, you know, results go either way, then we're all supposed to just go home and, um, and, uh, and not participate in trying to make the society better. Agreed. I want to get your opinion about uh, Noam Chomsky today, um, because I was, you know, for me, he was another person that I admired. Uh, when I hear him speak today, <laughs> he sounds like a different person. And I feel like he's not the same Noam Chomsky that we grew up learning about. Um, do you think that Noam Chomsky, in a way, is has also maybe gone back to brunch? Uh, listen, you know, it's, it's hard to ask me that question because Noam is, has been such an influential force in my life for, you know, as long as I've been intellectually aware. So I'm probably subconsciously inhibited from being objective about him. But I will say that, I mean, look, he says things that I don't agree with, like his stance on Syria, I don't fully agree with. Uh, he supports, um, a limited U.S. troop presence in Syria to protect the Kurds and to, you know, ensure a um, ideal situation for them. I don't agree with that. I don't think we should support pretty much on, under any condition U.S. military occupations and certainly not in the context of Syria. And, and he said other things about Syria that I just don't agree with. Um, I don't think he, uh, for example, acknowledges the um, the impact of the U.S. dirty war. And I think he's, uh, I think he faults the Syrian government for basically the act of defending itself from a war that it didn't start, which was a, a foreign backed dirty war, but you know, whatever. Um, and his stance on COVID, you know, his comments about what we should do with unvaccinated people. I don't agree with that, but you know, I, I'm like, I still think he's uh, look, he's Noam Chomsky. He's, he's so important. And I've heard him do so many interviews recently where he says things I totally agree with. And I've interviewed him recently and I always, whether I agree with him or not, I always benefit from hearing from him. So I know that some people are very disappointed in him, but I first of all believe in respecting our elders, and I do think they get more of a pass than other people. Um, sure, that's just my own personal view. And so I, um, but yeah, but it's cool. It's okay. I mean, I've had to personally, for myself, I've had to accept that I'm not going to agree all the time with Noam Chomsky. And like, it's it's funny that I even have to say that, but emotionally for me. I guess because I developed my my attachment to him at an age when I was still, you know, a kid and uh, emotionally developing, I had to go through that. I had to like process that, but that's okay. It's fine to uh, to not be in full lockstep with your heroes. It's it, it's okay. Thank you, David, for the super chat. Aaron's work on Syria is underreported and underappreciated. Great questions. Thank you for having him on. Thanks so much, David. 
Thanks, David. You know, the unfortunately, this society is not going to be ready for the truth about Syria for many, many years. And look, I, I came way late to it. I I didn't do much on Syria until it was way too late, um, until pretty much after the dirty war, the worst of it, it was over. It was people like my colleagues at the Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal, Ben Norton, Rania Kalik, who uh, and many others who, you know, back when it was unfashionable, really unfashionable to speak the truth about Syria, which is that there was this um, barbaric dirty war waged against Syria that the U.S. had a major role in, along with Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, uh, Israel, uh, the European Union. Um, you know, they back when they were saying it, there were serious consequences. There were career consequences. They were slandered all the time. Now it's so obvious, and the and the dirty war is over, that it's easier for me, I think, to politically, at least... Um, politically to speak the truth without worrying about being harassed by trolls. Although I do get that. Um, but I'm way too late to the game. But certainly it's frustrating for me that there's not more of a willingness, especially on the left, especially at places like Democracy Now! or The Intercept, to talk about the facts. Because uh, what happened, what the U.S. did in Syria is everything that progressives, if they take our politics seriously, are supposed to oppose. And regardless, as journalists, we're supposed to talk about the facts. And there's just been this resounding unwillingness to look at the facts of Syria or, you know, and there's also been this willingness to whitewash Syria. And that's where places like Democracy Now! and The Intercept have been so, um, uh, they've been so egregious in, in their journalism, such so much malpractice. And I'm just trying to do my part now. And I have an amazing story, this OPCW cover-up scandal that I've been spending a lot of time on. It's an incredible story, and I've gotten access to some great sources and source material. And I will continue to follow it, whether or not um, it gets picked up or not, because it's just such a damning story. And eventually, I think, you know, the stories like this will get the attention that they deserve. Thanks so much, Roger, for the super chat. Organizing at the state level is easier than nationwide. I do agree with that 100%. I have had experience with that as well. Thank you so much, Red Precarian. I'm smiling because all the cards are on the table. We now know, if we didn't know before, who these political progressives in the office really are. That's the only good thing that I can take from this. Thank you so much, Red Precarian. Um, like, I have didn't to, didn't, oh, didn't Pramila Jayapal say like something like "try us"? Like, come on, like bring it on, <laughs> right? Was wasn't that her line back when they were like talking about, uh, you know, the question of decoupling? the infrastructure from Build Back Better. And Pramila was saying, we're not going to cave, try us. Uh, and of course, and they caved. And, um, you know, it happens every time. It happens every time. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, what are your predictions on 22-24 elections? I have no predictions. I have no predictions. I, I don't know. I thought, I thought Trump was going to lose in 2016. I thought Hillary was going to sweep him. So what do I know, you know? Um, I don't know, Sabby, do you have any predictions on the elections? I think Dems are going to lose. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Joe Biden's approval rating is just continually like going down. It went down again yesterday. Right. Um, I talked about that. Kamala Harris is sitting at like 20, between 21 and 28% approval rating. Uh, I think they're trying to like push her out with Pete Buttigieg. I could be yeah. wrong, but yeah. they're talking very highly of him uh, yeah. over the past couple couple of weeks and I wouldn't be surprised even though Joe Biden said he does intend to run again I wouldn't be surprised if that changes um and they try to do a Buttigieg 
Harris ticket. I don't think that'll work either, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, Those are two really phony people and <laughs> on the ticket. That's like what part of the phoniest ticket I've uh I can I can recall. Biden at least has some. I mean, he's phony, obviously. They're all phonies, but he 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 he, he like he comes off authentic, I think, at least more authentic than other politicians do. I mean, obviously, he's a complete liar and he spent his career lying, but there's, I don't know. He does, he, 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 he pretends to be authentic, I guess, way more effectively than people to judge and Kamala Harris, who are just like steeped in dishonesty and, uh, and their contempt for like average people is just, is pretty palpable, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think Kamala Harris should have ever been vice president. She was not ready for that position, uh, not making excuses for her. She is yeah. who she is, but I don't think she was ready for that position. She was only in the Senate, I think, two years uh, before she started to run for president. I didn't think she was ready to be president, and she couldn't even get a single delegate. So it's just no, no. Yeah. <laughs> they keep trying to make yeah. Kamala a thing. Yeah. And but look, it's the Obama playbook. I mean, oh, oh, and Obama is what I think, you know, who I think is the main inspiration for Kamala and certainly for Pete Buttigieg. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is like, you can tell he's just copying every move Obama made. And Obama was also in the Senate for two years. I believe he got nothing done. And he ran for president because, you know, it's all about, it's all about your personality. It's all about how smooth you can be in convincing people that you're a change maker when you're just a con man. So... I think Kamala probably thought she could do the same thing. And Pete Buttigieg definitely is following in that model. And, uh, you know, that's what the party rewards. I mean, that's that's it's not about people who have actual real experience with working people and helping people improve people's lives. It's about how smooth you are on TV and how lofty you can sound in your rhetoric. Agreed. Well, I think like they choose people. Like they have yeah. their favorites who they they want. Like after Obama, it was supposed to be Hillary. I think that was decided when Obama won back in 08, that yeah. Hillary would be the next person to come in. Um, I don't know who they planned, you know, to run like after Hillary, but uh, the Hillary, Hillary losing to Trump in 2016, like for the DNC, like that was not supposed to happen. No. And I don't think they saw that coming. No. And, uh, and Joe, I mean, Joe Biden got kind of like, he got kicked to the curb in 2016. I mean, he says he didn't run because his son died. I don't know. It seems to me that basically Obama went with Hillary over him and he got pushed out. And so that's why it's it's like, you know, part of me, of all the politicians, Biden to me is, um, I have some kind of personal, at least I have more personal sympathy for him than others because he's gone through genuine tragedy in his life. And uh, and he's constantly uh, he's constantly underestimated. And, he, and it, look, in the case of 2020, he did he did, he did prove them wrong. Now, of course, he had the help of Trump, who was like, <laughs> you know, overseeing COVID and being blamed for it, and such a disaster in so many different ways that that helped him. But um, it, I I I wonder if uh, Biden, I'm sure, felt a huge vindication over everyone in his own party, including his you know, former colleagues who had doubted him in 2016. Agreed. Um, I'm, I'm curious about this. If, and I do think that Republicans are going to win in 2024. Mm. If Republicans win in 2024, do you think that the Democratic Party will try to implement some type of changes uh, in order to get back in the game? Or do you think they'll continue to do what they've been doing? No, no. 
I think they're a lost cause. They're a corporate run party and there's no capacity there for self-reflection or transformation. I mean, they have a base of, you know, uh, black voters and of some working class voters, although I think that's increasingly shrinking, but not, it's not an organized force, uh, inside the democratic party that's powerful enough to overcome the donor class, which controls everything. That's who runs the party. So no, I don't, no, no matter what happens, I don't think you can expect change from Democrats and uh, what you can expect is more scams like Russiagate to avoid responsibility. That's what they're good at. Thanks so much, Justin, for the super chat. There appears to be a void of leftist media media in Canada. Would you ever consider filling it? Yes, I'd love to. I, I'm not connected. It's, I'm, I'm not connected to leftist media in Canada at all. And it's, uh, I'd love to be because um, that's where I'm from. And I, I'm, you know, it's where my family and friends are, and I'm very close to it. And I, um, and there's, you know, there's a real, as Justin says, there's a huge void. So I would love to fill it. Yes. I just don't know how, because there's not really the opportunity for it in Canada right now. It's like, um, it's, uh, there's, there's not that many people in Canada. It's a pretty small country. And so uh, I just don't know how one can make it happen. But yeah, one day I would, one day I will try. I will try to fill the void. Thanks, Eric. Uh, Aaron, great report on Jill Scott Heron. If capitalism is the problem, what do you think can be done to change it? Thanks for the super chat. I don't know. Um, what I do know is I look to places that inspire me most. And there are places where it's the people who have far less than we do in the U.S., far less opportunities, uh, far less resources, have achieved far more than we have. I mean, in Haiti, after years of dictatorship, at the uh, end of the 1980s and in, in, the, in the early 1990s, they elected Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who came from the poor, who represented the masses. And that's a you know one of the most uh, impoverished countries in the hemisphere. Same with Bolivia. Evo Morales comes from social movements. So if they can do it there in countries that have far less resources than we do, why can't we do that here? Is it because things haven't gotten bad enough yet? I mean, that's the dark path that that train of thought goes down for me. And I hope that's not the case where things have to get so dire that it's only then that we can produce leaders who actually represent the people. But in terms of the places that have inspired me most, that's that's their trajectory. And of course, when they do that, they get targeted by the U.S. empire to overthrow those leaders as they did in both Haiti and Bolivia. And Haiti did it twice. But um, here, you know, we have the opportunity to do that. We, we, we could, if we wanted to, have a Jean-Bertrand Aristide or an Evo Morales, but we don't. And um, it, in terms of why we can, it's like, you know, we're all chasing a comfortable, you know, middle-class lifestyle, uh, mm -hmm. There's a huge assault on working people in this country. Unions try to organize. They get attacked. People are barely you know, able to survive. So there's so many obstacles. And I don't know what the answer is, but it's just it's interesting that, uh, you know, I'm sorry to repeat myself, but other places with far less resources have actually elected genuine, authentic grassroots leaders, whereas we, we've never done that. I agree. I agree. Sabi, if possible, please ask Mate if he believes there would be an opportunity to create a sustainable marketing campaign to drive and create a third party and simultaneously awake Americans. 
I do, of course. I mean, uh, it should happen. It's just very hard. I mean, you, anytime you try to create any kind of institution, there's going to be, you know, there's money problems, there's infighting all the time. I mean, look at what happens with the Green Party and the People's Party. And I'm not faulting anyone uh, in those parties for this. I salute any effort to create alternatives to the Republicans and Democrats, but it's just hard. And people get tired and burned out. I mean, uh, like every leftist institution that I've been a part of, there's always infighting and backstabbing. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, and if you do a third party, you're going to have to worry about infiltrators. There's going to be shady characters coming in to try to sabotage things. It's just, it's tough. It's tough. And I don't, I don't know how to do it. You know, it's just going to happen. People are going to keep on trying and trying and trying and trying until it works. That's just how history works, I think. Yeah. One of the things I can add about the marketing, um, for those who may not be aware, even those 30 second TV ads that you see, those campaign yeah. TV ads, those ads are very expensive. Mm. So when people are, you know, knocking on doors and asking if you can donate to their campaign, that's why it's so heavily important that you really do need the money. And it's unfortunate, but like if you don't have the money, how are you going to get the word out? Uh social media is a great platform. Twitter is is great for that. Um, I've noticed as well, but the reality is a lot of people are also not on Twitter. So you have to reach that, those people, you have to read that population too. Um, and that's where the advertising and the marketing comes in and you really need the money to do it. Unfortunately. You do, you do. And, and, and that's where, you know, le so much of leftist politics becomes subordinate to, you know, who's going to get the money from the wealthy donors. There's like a certain wealthy donor pool who will give money to leftist causes, but, um, you still have then rich people deciding ultimately, you know, the outcome of progressive movements or at least shape having a very major role in it. And, um, you know, same with leftist media. I mean, the most well-funded leftist media outlets, you know, I've already talked about a couple of them are constantly compromising their values, but that's just, that's just how it is. And the, the people who speak the truth, about war and um, about the nature of the Democratic Party, they're punished for it. Uh, they're not going to get, you know, big donors like the more Democratic Party friendly outlets are. Yeah. Another thing I would say to people is to please do your own research as well, because what you have to remember sometimes, especially when candidates are running, like you're going to hear the story that they want you to hear. Right. Mm -hmm. They're not going to come on and tell you bad things about their self, but do your own research uh, I, I recommend doing this with someone, I mean, it's too late now she's already in, but someone I should have did more research on was AOC and I didn't. And then when I did, when, after she got in and I was like, something seems a little sketchy here. And I started doing my own research and I realized that the story that was told or her story that was told wasn't even like completely true. So it's just, again, that's why I always tell people it's important that you also do your own research. I don't know about that. I, I don't know about AOC's background. Um, I, I know that she interned for Senator Kennedy, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's not quite the resume of like a grassroots uh, person to go intern, and, you know, but I also think, I also think AOC gets, you know, she like, and I don't falter for this, but this like, she gets a lot of focus and I just don't think it's productive or healthy for anyone. She gets blamed for things I don't think are her fault. I personally, you know, I 
I was excited by her candidacy. And, and then afterwards, as soon as she started talking about foreign policy, I realized that she was not the politician who I thought she was. But at the same time, I just think, I think it'd be healthy for everyone if uh, if we were focused not on on personalities, but just on on issues, you know? And I think um, it's like, I mean, she's been disappointing to me on, on the issues that I care about, which is foreign policy and stuff. But she's also just one Congress member, you know, in the House. It's not, you know, I think she takes up too much space in the in the lefty conversations. Right. I can see that, too. Um, thanks so much, Harry. 2022 and 2024 could be the best opportunity for independents and other parties since Ross Perot took about 20 percent in the 1992 election. Will anyone take it? Yeah, but I mean, there you go. I mean, you're talking about money. Like Ross Perot is a billionaire. You know, so he could afford to spend, every, you know, uh, as much as he wanted. And he did take 20%, which is pretty amazing. Imagine that now. So mm -hmm. as you were saying, Sabi, I mean, it takes money. And, uh, you know, and, and then for money to get behind someone, there has to be some agreement on who is a candidate who everyone can get behind. And that's tough. You know, you saw when, when Ralph Nader campaigned, there were, he got some support. I mean, there were some big rallies for him. Like he would fill a couple of stadiums and there was some momentum and, but still, you know, it's nowhere near enough. It's, um, it, 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 you know, but it's possible. I mean, again, if Haiti and Bolivia can do it, why can't we? Right. I think it would be, I think it could work if you have someone who has a large name recognition, it has right. to be someone that everybody knows. Yeah. And I, I'm just going to throw this out here. This person has never said this, but, for example, someone like Cornell West, mm. yes. someone that everybody knows, yeah. like it needs to be, it has to be someone big. I hate to say it, but it's true. Uh, I, if it was Dr. West, that would be incredible. I don't know if he wants to be a politician, but someone like him, someone as eloquent and as principled as him and as uh, charismatic. I mean, he, he's, someone like him would be perfect. Um, yeah, I'd get behind that. Oh, Cornell Wesson, uh, Chris Hedges. I saw that, Eric. That was good. Uh, <laughs> none of your business. Thank you. We have been programmed to believe a third can't win. Yeah, we have. We have. Other countries have like multiple parties. Yeah. The the only thing with, you know, like if, if so, let's say if it was someone like Dr. West, then it, it would be cool if it was Dr. West and someone not from academia or media, but from, you know, the working class, like an actual worker a labor organizer that would be incredible because that's never represented at that level that's true uh retro millennium thank you so much said aaron and sabby the reason why economically poor countries are able to make great change and not the u.s it's because the oligarchy here pour a lot of resources to prevent it brainwashing yes. 101 mm -hmm. mm. thanks so much for that it's true you can see that too yeah, I agree. Uh, I want to ask you one more question. I want to get your opinion about what's happening with Julian Assange right now. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's hard to think about. Here's someone who's done more than anybody else alive today to inform the world about the criminality of the world's most powerful people, the world's most powerful government, the U.S. government. And he's being tortured for it and persecuted. And much of the media, U.S. media is yawning at it if they're barely even acknowledging the story at all. And 
again, going back to Russiagate, because part of Russiagate, the aim of Russiagate, or the use of Russiagate, was to demonize Assange and paint him out to be a Russian asset. And it worked. It, it worked in, you know, um, many people on the left got turned off of Assange. They blame him for Hillary losing in 2016 instead of Hillary Clinton choosing not to go to Michigan and Wisconsin because her people thought the more she went there, the worse she would do because her economic record was so unpopular. Instead, we have to blame Russia and Julian Assange. So um, it's uh, the most important media freedom case, I think, in U.S. history, and we should all be mobilizing for it. We, you know, um, and just as we're speaking, the Assange team is about to submit their appeal of the recent decision to uh, basically back the extradition. And they're going to tie him up, I think, in prison for as long as they can until he dies. I think that's the ultimate aim here. And we got to stop it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Joe Biden. They were asking Joe Biden about it at a press conference and he walked away from the podium. Oh, really? I didn't see that. Huh? Yeah. Well, at least they're asking about it. That's that's encouraging. That's yeah. encouraging. That's really encouraging. Thank you, Roger. Uh, parties have self-interest. Abolish all instead. That's a good question. Do we really need political parties? Uh, ideally, I mean, I don't know. I mean, but uh, we have them. You know, I don't see them going <laughs> away anytime soon, unfortunately. But yeah, uh, ideally, would it be cool to not have to belong to any kind of party? Yeah. We're all just a part of humanity, but that's, I, I don't think that's going to happen while, while we're still here on this earth, at least, unfortunately. I hope I'm wrong. All right, Aaron, I have a fun question for you. Thanks so much, Aspen Fallen. Inquiring minds need to know, how does Aaron keep his skin so flawless? <laughs> Is it all that blood splatter from buzzsawing his enemies on Twitter? <laughs> uh, I, I don't have anything to say about that. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm flattered by the question, but I got, I don't really have a skincare routine. <laughs> my uh, my friends do, and they speak to some. They swear by some products that, uh, like my really good friend, my best friend, swears by Pharrell Williams. Pharrell Williams uh, men's skincare line. He says it's great. I've never I've, I've never tried it. I think I uh, I uh, so um, I I don't have anything to, to say about that, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but I but I appreciate the question. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I didn't know Pharrell uh, had. Uh, a men's care, skincare line, but he owns so much stuff. So I'm yeah. not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Aaron, before we head out, can you tell everybody where they can find you and what do you have coming up next? So at the gray I have uh, more reporting about the Syria OPCW cover-up scandal. I've told this story in great detail. I've written a lot, but there's so much more to come. There's a lot that hasn't come out yet. And there's so much material that it's just so fascinating, like, and it's right in front of our eyes. It's all there. I mean, you, all the shady stuff goes on all the time from the U.S. government and from other powerful, powerful governments. And we can see it happening, but, you know, usually we don't have the internal documents to prove everything. In the case of the OPCW cover-up scandal, again, where the OPCW censored their own investigation after that investigation found no evidence for a chemical attack by the Syrian government, and basically undermine the pretext the U.S. used to bomb Syria in 2018. Uh, there's just so much material. It's an amazing story. It's been completely censored in the media. The mainstream media won't even acknowledge the existence of this scandal because it's so damning 
to the propaganda used to sustain the dirty war on Syria and to justify the ongoing sanctions. And again, I'm going back to adversarial media. The Intercept has never acknowledged this story's existence. Democracy Now! has barely touched it. And when they did, they brought on a guy named Brian Whitaker who is, whose job, it, who's, who's made it his mission to whitewash the story. So that's how pathetic our media has been when it comes to this explosive story. And uh, I'm lucky that I get to cover it and there's a lot more material to come. And, you know, I'm doing pushback, my podcast on the gray zone. And I have a show on Colin, which is an, a new app too, where it's weekly. You can call in to talk with me and my guests. And the next one will be on Sunday. I'm going to talk about um, how basically streaming has hurt musicians and, uh, and, it, it, you know, it, the idea came to me is, you know, I mean, A, I've, I've heard about musicians talk about how hard it's been in, in the streaming era to, to earn a living. But also it's like, I was trying to think of all the albums that I loved this year. And it was like, it was harder for me to remember. And I, I blame that on streaming. I think because everything is accessible and you don't buy, you don't buy physical albums anymore. Yep. It's just streaming kind of like kills that, 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 that discovery, you know, and yep. that ownership of music that you treasure, you know, so. That's what I'm going to talk about on Colin this week. And uh, yeah, and I write at Substack, matthew.substack.com. And I'll just continue to you know produce as much quality journalism as I can. I don't know if you remember this, uh, Aaron, but do you remember Napster? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. For those who don't know, I don't know the age of everyone like watching, but um, Napster was a streaming service, but it was the music was free. Yeah. And so you could just download songs for free and then like Metallica had like this riff about it like they were really angry and said no sure. you don't get our music for free and it was a whole like ordeal yeah um I spent a I spent a, a dark weekend as a Napster fiend when like my friend had Napster and I just was discovering it and we could download anything we wanted and I was just I was just looking at like you know how like you could see what you're <laughs> downloading and like shows the download speed and I was getting all this I was getting like you know like this was in the early, this was like late nineties or early two thousands. So I was getting all the hip hop that I wanted to yep. get. And I was just, I was a fiend. I was like up for like, I don't know, 20 hours at my friend's house just downloading music. And finally it's like, man, like I, I need my computer back. And you're, you know, you're getting a little like, you know, like you're getting weird. And, <laughs> you know, and so luckily he set me straight, but I, uh, so I didn't, you know, like I broke my Napster chain then, but yeah. That set off the the spiral mm. run now where, you know, musicians, so many musicians just are getting hurt and can't afford to earn a living anymore, especially now with, you know, COVID touring being canceled, which is like, so what other source of income do people have? So that's what I want to talk about with some musician friends uh, this week on Colin, which will be on Sunday at five o'clock Eastern time. How do you like Colin so far? Have you received any... Uh strange calls no no people um come by and um i got people sharing some constructive criticism you know uh they want me to have different guests on pushback but it's cool you know it's great it's it's cool for me because it's like i have no way to really interact with my audience um except for except for colin you know like i see people on twitter but I, it's hard to you know you don't want to spend all your time on twitter so it's cool. There's a good way to engage with people. They come by and they chat. And I, it's a model that I hope can be replicated um, elsewhere too, because it's good to hear from people and to be challenged mm -hmm. and to get questions and to be able to be accountable to the people who, who, who you write for, who you work for. Awesome. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great.
Sabby, thanks for having me. It was fun. All right, guys. Have a good night. Keep up the fight. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.